Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. On today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive our world of business and politics. This week, we saw a massive spike in the rate of inflation and it meant that the government has to revise its entire plans for Budget 2023. Their own spending guidelines have now been set aside. It's clear that the budget will involve a big increase in spending and much larger tax package than had originally been envisaged. But is pumping so much money into the economy at a time of such high inflation the right thing to do? I'll be asking economist Austin Hughes for his views. And as we prepare ourselves for the impending economic headwinds, we'll examine the role of trade unions in the global economy. I'll be joined by IC2 General Secretary Patricia King to look at union membership here in Ireland and around the world at a time of great change and uncertainty for workers. And finally, Boris blustered on this week in an extraordinary attempt to cling on to power. He and the Conservative Party made a spectacular and inept attempt at a dignified departure. We'll ask what's next for the Tories as they face a leadership contest. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at stockNT. But first up today, it's certainly been the news of the week. The UK Conservative Party, a custodian of Britain's unwritten constitution, publicly tore itself to shreds as Boris Johnson attempted to drive a coach and horse through every single plausible protocol that has served their country for centuries. So what's next for the party and who might become its leader? To discuss all of this, I'm joined now from the UK by Will Hutton, who's political economist and columnist for The Observer and Guardian newspaper. Will, you're very welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Looking forward to the interview. Now, Will, the last time you joined us, you described the Prime Minister as behaving as a pugnacious columnist and you said that he would do anything to stay in power with no consequence for collateral damage. You were certainly right about that. The end when it came was dramatic and a dramatic end to a dramatic political career. Were you surprised by how unedifying the spectacle was at the end? Well, yes and no. You know, losing over 30 members of your government and then a 20 uh, ministerial aides on top of that, that's nearly half your government gone um, in the space of kind of 36 hours. You couldn't repopulate um, the ministerial positions and, and government was ceasing. And I think that uh, ultimately he, he just kind of uh, gave up. But his speech, his resignation speech, when talking about um, when the herd kind of moves, the herd moves, um, kind of dismissing his parliamentary party as a herd um, uh, was, a, again, an extraordinary sense of, again, that sense of entitlement that Johnson's had throughout his career. So I thought he was going to go. Uh, it was clear he was going to go. But the manner of his going um, is one of the most kind of extraordinary uh, and Kind of moments in British politics for certainly my adult lifetime and really challenging our unwritten constitution here in the UK. Mm. Look, you, you've made uh, predictions every time you've been on our show and, and they've all proven to be correct, but I wanted <laughs> I wanted to tease out. I'm not going to ask you who's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. Well, I'll get to that at the end, Will. But, um, um, I wanted to talk to you about that um, notion of, of Boris Johnson effectively 
coming to a point where he saw himself effectively as a presidential figure in the immediate wake of his uh, resignation. There's quite a lot of criticism um, being borne upon the Conservative Party for allowing it to get to this. Um, what do you make of their role in, in not maybe moving in a more concerted way against him? Will they be held to account for that? The problem with the Conservative Party, it's going to be obvious um, and you're going to have we're all going to watch an extraordinary spectacle, is that actually um, it's incredibly factionalised. I mean, you have um, a, a Brexit ultra um, like Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, remaining in office, but declaring her ambition to, to run. And her manifesto is um, to really be a go for a pure, pure Brexit, um, as if the current Brexit wasn't disastrous mm. enough. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, you have um, Tom Tugendhat, uh, backbencher uh, and chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, um, uh, and Tobias Elwood, um, kind of really one nation Tories, um, and with Tobias Elwood saying that Britain should rejoin the single market and the customs union. And that spectrum of opinion is within one party. And they don't know whether they're, they're an English nationalist party, a pure Brexit party, whether they should revert back to becoming a kind of a more conventional um, Christian Democrat, one nation conservative party. They don't really know what it means to be kind of on the right. Um, they think it means about being small government, but actually, can you have small government when you have to um, increase defence expenditure? Um, you have an ageing population, um, health and education outcomes are poor. Um, the notion that you can cut back the state, as some of the champions of leadership are going to say, um, uh, uh, in the weeks ahead um, is kind of ludicrous. So, you know, they knew how factionalised they were and they knew that they were kind of, that they kind of hoped that Boris Johnson would come through mm. in one way or another and avoid them having to make the invidious choices and the bitterness that's going to be opened up in the kind of weeks ahead. That was one reason um, why they didn't act. And the other reason it didn't act is that actually Johnson is a curiously compelling figure. I mean, he is a uh, he is a big beast. I mean, he may have no moral compass, which I think is what brought him down in the end. But he is a he is a kind of big political figure, and he towers over um, uh, uh, the Z list of nodding dogs as the um, leader of the opposition called the cabinet. So you know, the lack of an alternative the not wanting to open up um, all these kind of factional wounds and the sense that um, the thing wasn't settled. And actually, Britain being, yes, it's a parliamentary system, but actually in the world of social media, modern communications, inevitably the focus is on the leader of the parliamentary party and it get, it's quasi-presidential, even though the constitution doesn't admit that. So you know, all those things came together uh, to live through what we've lived through. Mm. He is a great performer. He's a fantastic campaigner. He's a great orator. But he um, didn't translate to become a manager of a government in the way that other prime ministers have in the past. I read a very interesting book recently by Simon Cooper about the evolution of Boris Johnson and you know the friends around him to from through to the Oxford uh, Debating Society that, they, yeah. that these yeah, people yeah, yeah. came through a process where 
you know, they actually just believed that the power um, was theirs. And I think that fed very much into Boris Johnson's belief. But but one of the other things I think that has allowed him to survive so long, even as prime minister, amongst all that chaos that has surrounded him, is the fact that he surrounded himself by sycophants and fairly mediocre politicians whose own success was sort of predicated on his. So where do those people sit within the Conservative Party now? Are there going to be a rump of Boris loyalists remaining or do you think that they're just going to toddle off into the backbenchers? Well, um, your listeners should um, know that I am a, uh, a Remainer. I do think that leaving the European Union was um, a cataclysmic mistake. And, uh, and if you were going to do Brexit... Um, it had to be a soft Brexit to make it manageable at all. And that the hard Brexit that Boris Johnson kind of championed, I mean, his oven-ready deal, was a kind of colossal act of stupidity, really against the British national interest, even interpreting the Brexit vote as being a vote to leave the European Union. There were other ways to leave the European Union that weren't so destructive. What that meant uh, politically was that, I mean, A, he only got to that point through, I mean, Brexit itself was mm. a, a vote won on, on a series of lies. Uh, the hard Brexit that emerged in December 2019 after he won the general election was further lies. And so to actually be in a ca- the cabinet with um, Boris Johnson, you had to uh, either not be very clever uh, or not see it was a lie or actually make a compromise with yourself, like someone like Michael Gove did, that although it was a lie, you'd go along with it. Uh, And a lot of very good people just couldn't stomach it. Mm. Equally, he himself got rid of some of the better people in the Tory party uh, in that period up to the election in December 2019. All that he could surround himself with were very poor uh, second-rate people not people who thought for themselves or not people who were going to kind of challenge him, really urge kind of listeners in Ireland to kind of take this on board. I mean, there isn't one single economic interest group in Britain that benefits from Brexit. There's no cultural disposition to do Brexit. I mean, we are a European country with European values. And actually, the the losing of the um, Brexit vote was this extraordinary coalition between kind of entitled public schoolboys like uh, Boris Johnson, who disliked the European Union because it got in the way of actually utterly sovereign rule for people like them. Mm. Uh, and a kind of uh, older people in Britain, the over 60s, who, who vote, who had a kind of backward-looking view of the world um, and were very, very ferociously anti-immigration. The working population, even in 2016, Men and women between 18 and 65 voted 51-49 to stay in the European Union. So it's been, you know, trying to construct a successful government from such a narrow uh, political base proved elusive. Mm. And it's going to be elusive for his successor, in my view, whoever he she is. Um, this won't end uh, until we get an accommodation with the European Union around a, kind of a, a more serious kind of policy framework. And I'm afraid we're not going to see that. So when you ask about Boris Johnson's political weaknesses, they're rooted in the kind of Faustian bargain he struck um, with his party and with the electorate. 
He lied to win. Consequently, that cut off the supply line of able people. You're watching what happens when there's no integrity in your national politics, mm. either dealing with malfeasance, like the Chris Pinch, the deputy chief whip, drunk, fondling men's genitals uh, in the Carlton Club and not taking action on it, as you didn't say, and lying about Partygate and all of that. Yeah. That's part of a piece with your wider politics. So, you know... Um, Yesterday at the, the liaison committee, I think you got a sense of the culture um, that has built up around Boris Johnson and that notion of tolerating behaviour that no other prime minister would, number one, tolerate. It certainly wouldn't be appointing somebody to a senior position like that. I want to talk to you a little bit about that culture within uh, Boris Johnson's own orbit, because the operations at Downing Street have never seemed to me to be like a functioning government, more like a kind of out of control campaign HQ. Um, did he have people around him were, who were you know, after Cummings departure who actually had a mission, who had some sort of policy direction? Is this all down to him or can we look at the people around him who failed also? Well, you know, when he was mayor of London, he did have such people. I mean, he, he governed London quite well for eight years and he was able to construct a cabinet around lots of able people, but wasn't able to do it well, in government, and actually, in a sense, I mean, you're right, of course. I mean, he, he, you know, when Dominic Cummings kind of crashed out of the operation, he didn't have a kind, a kind of uh, a right hand woman or man on whom he could rely, or a team on whom he could rely. Um, and it did take on the characteristic of a campaign. But here's my point: uh, reason why. Uh, it's taken on the, the uh, it's been campaigning rather than governing, is because actually it's dynamically unstable. I can't stress this enough. In the first three months of this uh, calendar year, Britain had the biggest um, uh, kind of balance of payments deficits uh, since records began. Uh, close to 10% of GDP. These are completely unsustainable. An export collapse, imports booming. You know, you deny yourself full access to your um, major market in Europe and you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And you have to carry on lying about it. So, of course, you have to campaign. You have to keep on pretending that there are Brexit opportunities when there are none. Um, and, that, and that forces you back into this, you know, a position where you can't really govern. You have to, you have to keep kind of selling the lie. Um, and that's, that's the conundrum that whoever's going to succeed Johnson will face as well. Yes, um, and that brings us on to what you're really here for, Will, is to help us make some predictions about what's <laughs> going to happen next. You, you spoke there about the ultimate solution being, you know, to, to, to carve out a better deal with Europe. But um, as we've seen in the last 48 hours, is a very, very long time in British politics. So Boris Johnson in his um, exit speech said that next week they, the party are going to outline a timetable for his departure. What do you think that will be and who do you think are the front runners uh, to be the likely successor? I won't ask you to stick to one, but maybe just give us a flavour of who you feel okay. will be in the final shakeup. I think that um, there are, it'll, it'll come down to um, a battle between three or four people. Um, I think the, um, the favourite amongst the activists is the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, um, uh, um, who's a good man, actually, uh, intelligent, and he's done well uh, in the Ukraine crisis. His problem is that he was one of the 
kind of set list of nodding dogs. Yeah, um, he went out to bat for him quite a bit, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. And he did. And that's going to be, that's a problem for Ben Wallace. Of the two men who resigned, um, I think Sajid Javid is the uh, the health secretary, gave an impressive speech. He probably uh, is uh, uh, got to be watched. And the one who's got most MPs behind them is the International Trade Secretary, um, Penny um, Mordaunt. She allegedly has got has got fifty MPs behind her, and she's a she's a Eurosceptic and a Brexiter. Um, and she kept her head down. She didn't do much um, batting for Boris Johnson, rather like John Major um, back in the day after, who emerged as a leader after Margaret Thatcher resigned, who was in the cabinet. You, there are no clips of Penny Mundt uh, defending Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those that trio, I think, um, are going to emerge as the as as the front runners. Ben Wallace, he really did warn back in January about um, Putin's ambitions, probably more than any other politician kind of um, in Western Europe at the time. And that's that's going to be a, a big plus for him. He's also a former military man. Uh, you know, the party is going to want three things. It's going to want somebody who it really believes will govern with integrity. I mean, I think they're all shattered by uh, going out to bat for Johnson and then discovering that what they were told by number 10 was false. Whoever wins it will be somebody who's clearly not going to put colleagues in that position or the party in that position. So they're going to have to be a person of considerable integrity. And I think that means, uh, and Wallace uh, ticks that box. Just very briefly then, we're just running out of time. Just the timetable. Do you think that Boris Johnson will hang on for months or do you think that the party will try and oust him very quickly? No, he will. He will be allowed to govern. He'll be allowed to be prime minister. The, uh, they'll get very quickly to a short list of two, which they have to put to the party membership. They might even do that by the end of July, and then that the party membership will vote over August, and the, a leader will be announced in the second or third week of September before the party conference at the end of September. That's the timetable. Okay. And if, if anything, um, it could happen. It could happen sooner. Um, it could be a bit like Theresa May. Um, it uh, could become very clear very quickly who the front runner is and the others just drop out for the sake of party unity and to get Johnson out of office. Well, we'll um, we could certainly stay here and talk about this uh, all day. It, it does make for great entertainment, but there's obviously very serious, deeper issues here and a significant challenges, as you say, that face any British government, whatever the makeup of that might be. For now, though, that's Will Hutton. Will, thank you very much for joining us again today. Thank you very much. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, as the government opts to announce its budget package early, we'll ask economist Austin News if it'll be enough or it's just going to be a case of eating bread soon forgotten. That's after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, there was lots of news on the economic front this week as the government published its summer economic bulletin and it's promising more for hard-pressed families in the budget that's upcoming in September. And also, the Central Bank this week published its quarterly bulletin and it warned against threats upon the national finances because of our now over-reliance, as they see it, on multinational firms. But if we stand back and take stock of all of it collectively. What does it mean for our economy and more importantly for your businesses and for your households? I'm joined now to discuss all of this by economist Austin Hughes. Austin, thanks very much for joining us today. 
Very happy to, Mandy. Now, if you'll indulge me for a moment on the tactics of all of this uh, and around the summer economic bulletin. The government are clearly trying to plan ahead for the winter months and to sort of steal people for what lies ahead for their families. I'm not sure myself um, about the tactics of announcing an entire budget package a couple of months early was the way to go about it. It could be a case of sort of eating bread is soon forgotten. And I don't think it's going to do much to stop for people or um, interest groups asking for more between now and the budget on the 27th of September. What do you think of this as a tactic? Well, I think they were damned if they did and damned if they didn't. Uh, if they hadn't announced significant uh, amounts of spending to come, then there would have been a sense of an uncaring, uh, unaware government, really. Uh, uh, so I think they had to do something. I think we still don't have much detail uh, and I, I think, again, you know, I would have some sympathy for your view because to use a very bad metaphor in this circumstances, you, you know, the, the summer statement has generated far more heat than light mm. about what's going to happen over the balance of the year. So for some people that uh, we're starting to hear talk about, you know, recklessness with the public finances, for others not doing enough. Uh, so it is generating that sort of storm but we're not really any clearer about what will be done, how much it will offset uh, uh, the problems the economy faces and what sort of path it sets out uh, for 2023 and beyond in terms of basically managing through uh, a problem that is very serious and is particularly difficult for many families. But it's still one that we have the capacity to handle both fiscally in terms of the current state of the public finances and more importantly economically the the general health of the economy. Yeah, I was doing some sums on this earlier on and when you break that 6.7 billion down in my um, estimates there's about 3 billion already announced in existing spending. There's about a billion for public sector pay if they hold the line uh, on their percentage and there's about a billion for tax um, in credits and and changing bans etc. That's still nowhere near what Leo Radker was advocating for. So that leaves about 1.7 billion for new expenditure to deal with the cost of living and the fuel increases. It's not great when you consider that they spent four billion in the first four months of the year. It really isn't enough. Uh, I think there will need to be a little bit more. And perhaps, uh, again, let's talk tactics here. You you know, I think that the major sort of fiscal success uh, of the last 15 years is the way the Troika were managed by, uh, you know, under-promising and over-delivering. I would be hopeful, and I really think it is important that the government does a little bit more in terms of the scale. Uh, And then the critical issue is, what will the substance be? Because if if it's something where everyone gets a little, uh, then uh, it probably won't satisfy anyone, nor will it put the economy on a stronger footing. It does seem that the tactic of uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath to try and focus on what might be called uh, once-off measures. I, I kind of look at it as the the COVID model where um, you can give a once-off payment. It may not be repeated. Uh, that can be done for things like the fuel allowance or even more generally in the welfare scheme. Uh, do you think that that's the right approach now uh, as we face into a, a very difficult winter for families? I think it's the form that has to be followed in terms of suggesting that this is temporary and that it won't generate sort of permanent increases of, you know, 
5 10% in various spending headings. So uh, I think this is certainly the way they have to signal it. Mm. But again, in terms of substance, I, I think there is a need to do more. And the reality is the cost of living issues, while the rate of inflation, which is the change in prices, may ease back, I don't think we're going to see lower energy or food prices anytime soon. So inflation may ease back next year, uh, but the cost of living will still be a vexed issue for many families. And for that reason, I think, you know, you know, once off where it's temporary and goes away really doesn't address the issue. There's a lot of talk of, say, a second Christmas bonus effectively for welfare recipients. And that may make sense in terms of dealing with the immediate problem they face and getting through the early part of winter. But it really won't help in terms of those families' capacity to deal with higher food and energy bills in early 23. So I do think while they may talk about once-off, and it is the sort of the right mood music, both you know in terms of expectations domestically and signaling internationally what's been done, I think that there will have to be more lasting increases in spending that, that are going to be quite significant into next year. So are you saying that you think inflation has peaked at this stage? Uh, and, I, and I know what the point you're making there, if, if the temporary measures run out and inflation is still rising, um, it's not really of, uh, of tremendous value to those homes who are suffering real difficulties with the energy prices on top of the cost of living issues. Well, one kind of, I don't think anyone can say whether inflation has peaked uh, as yet. Mm. Uh, I I think the the reality is, you know, international energy markets are so volatile and could be under quite an amount of strain in the the winter. So I think the risks are that inflation heats up further. I I think it's going to be higher through June, July anyway. Mm. uh, And then we'll see what happens to energy prices. But what I'm talking about is that, you know, inflation will slowly ease back so that next year's average is 4.5%, maybe, or 5%, you know, compared to maybe 7.5% this year. So the rate of inflation slows down, but the cost of living problems, you know, it's not that you unwind the 7.5 or unwind that 4.5. I think there has to be, you know, permanent sort of embedded increases uh, that assist particularly those families on lower incomes to deal with the fact that the cost of living is likely to remain more expensive for the foreseeable future. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and I'm talking to economist Austin Hughes. Just picking up on that point then, Austin, um, I've seen you writing, you're quite critical of the lack of preparedness um, uh, what the government should be doing ahead of this autumn. And I have to say, in all my years, like, you know, studying politics, I have yet to see the amount of or hear the amount of fear from officials briefing in the background. There really is a sense that this winter could hold a tremendous amount of difficulties, not just for the government, but more importantly, for business and for households. What more do you think the government should be doing beyond what they're doing now? Well, I I think there are two things. I I think one is signalling, and there is that sense that uh, it is coming through, but perhaps not clearly enough, that the government can't fully offset the problems of an international energy crisis. Um, 
but that they will do whatever they can in those circumstances. I think some of this two-sided commentary that says, you, you know, we will do something, but we have to be prudent and we're very worried about, you know, the public finances and debt and that, I think it misses the point at the moment. And I do think a lot of commentary, and I, I think a lot of economic commentary beyond officialdom uh, seems to regard the only type of economic crisis in Ireland as a fiscal crisis. Mm. We certainly had our share of fiscal crises, but by and large they've been because the economy wasn't run particularly well. I think there are broader issues around the economy. And in this circumstance, I think what the government has to, to promise is that it will do everything it can to prevent the wheels coming off in, in terms of you know, a severe economic and social dislocation uh, in the event of an energy crisis, while, you know, obviously flagging that, that it can't unwind, uh, you know, international energy prices at unprecedented levels, or perhaps problems around the security uh, of energy supply. I think the critical thing is to suggest that it is willing to do whatever, it, you know, can be done. And that, again, is a little bit like the COVID model, mm. which is very successful that says this is unfortunately a crisis that you know is very severe but we will do whatever we can and i think part of that comes from beginning to actually say well hang on a minute the problem at the moment is not the state of the public finances it's the risks to businesses and households from the sort of winter we've been talking about you know where there were massive problems both in terms of supply and price of, of energy. So in those circumstances, it has to be remembered that, you know, the government a year ago was talking about a deficit in the public finances of around $8 billion this year. Now they're talking about a surplus of about a billion. Mm. Uh, on the commission numbers, we have the strongest public finances in the eurozone this year. Austin, so can I, I just think, just come in on that one, yep. if, if I may, please? Because yes, we've seen um, all year the economy performing really strong. We're doing really, really well in the European context. We're outliers in that sense. We're vastly overshooting the tax revenues. Um, but mixed with all of that, there is that huge uncertainty about how things are going to evolve over the coming months. The truth of the matter is we expect that the economy may be on a turning point. We just don't know how sharp that turn will be. So what the government are doing, and it's, you know, it's not their fault, but it's a bit of a punt if they're getting this mix right, uh, you know, kind of trying to navigate this middle course where they're giving people uh, money in an inflationary um, context to try and get them through. But we just don't know if this is the right tactic. Uh, no, we can't know the future. Yeah, you know, that's just the simple answer in terms of that. But we do know that most of the problems that we've faced in the past have been because the economy came to an abrupt halt. Mm. Uh, and in that regard, the issue is to try and cushion the blow uh, to a problem that is not of our making. If the problem was, as it was in the early 2000s, about, you know, overspending and a very inflationary attitude, then I think you could argue that y you would need to be tightening the fiscal belt now, whereas I'm talking about loosening it in that regard. Mm. So so I, I do think there, there's an issue to try and keep the economy on track and try and keep broader 
society from running into really significant problems. And it's that stabilizing mechanism, I, I think, is the critical issue at the moment. And I think there is leeway to do it. It isn't the case that we can write a blank check. The difficulty here is not, you know, the old economic adage about the job of the central bank people talk about to, to take away the punch bowl when the party, uh, before the party gets rowdy. Um, I think the critical thing is there's no sense of what we're talking about, about a party this autumn. So it's a case of maybe trying to keep give people a warm drink. In, uh, you know, uh, so in that regard, I don't think the inflationary issue is the real problem there. There is money being taken out of the economy. We are going to see a significant slowdown in economic activity. But I think we can cushion the blow. And I think the critical element there is that the signal in which that uh, is very important. And then the substance. And I would argue that we probably need to think about how we tackle this. So it's not a case of cutting energy prices per se. It, it is It's about a uh, trying to assist people to, to pay their bills. Exactly. Yeah. So, Austin, were the central bank right to warn the government about our over-reliance on multinationals and to suggest that we should be using that money to put some away for a rainy day? They're, they're absolutely right to warn about this, but I don't know that it's the most pressing issue at the moment. I think what we've been talking about for the last few minutes is the most pressing issue and it's part of a broader problem because alongside this particular inflation difficulty we're facing now we have broader inflation issues in regard to housing costs childcare costs and i do think in that regard there's the capacity for the budget to to maybe take the opportunity of a crisis and put a little bit more focus on these areas. And it's not all about giving more money away. I think part of the the measures that have been talked about, you know, a vacant site tax in the budget, that will be something we may need to talk about higher property taxes to try and cool the inflationary element there. I think the critical thing is that the government takes substantive measures to deal with the immediate problem and then also signals that it's not a case of a free-for-all in terms of inflation. In terms of the multinational sector, the critical thing there is to ensure that the multinationals um, are still finding Ireland attractive. Now, the IDA uh, report for the first six months of the year is hugely encouraging in that regard. Uh, You know, record numbers of new investment, 155 projects, 73 of them from new companies coming in, the rest from return. So a lovely balance there in terms of the economy. Yes, there is a huge risk in terms of the amount we're taking in. But, Mm. you know, I I think what we need to do there is think about, you know, uh, you mentioned a rainy day fund. what we're talking about is a rainy day yeah, by yeah. any sort of... So I think the once-off element there and focusing attention on that well, and on infrastructure, I think that's the way, rather than putting the money away for for an emergency when we're actually facing into an immediate emergency. Thank you for taking the time to give us your insights into this today. That was Austin Hughes, economist, joining us here on Newstalk's Taking Stock. Austin, thank you very much. Thank you, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, if you've been a member of a union or not, they've had a role in shaping societies here in Ireland and around the world. Membership is on the rise again. Find out why after the break. 
You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, trade unions are a way for workers to improve their living and working conditions for sure. But just how important are trade unions in the Irish and global socio-economic landscape? Now, I'm joined by Patricia King, who is, of course, the General Secretary of ICTU, the umbrella organisation for trade unions here in the Republic and in Northern Ireland. Patricia, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you very much, Mandy. Patricia, I might just start with your own trade union journey, if I can. Uh, How did you become involved? Well, I went from uh, leaving certain schools straight into work and I one of my earlier jobs was uh, in the car trade in British Leyland uh, many years ago. And um, while I was working there, there was great turbulence because car manufacturing was uh, on the way out uh, be- uh, due to the uh, European Union, I suppose, imports freely flowing around the EU, which hadn't been the case. And it was no longer, I suppose, viable for the car industry to be as productive as it had been uh, in Ireland. And therefore, there was a lot of job loss. And uh, around that job loss, there was a lot of industrial turbulence and uh, uh, very I, I, one of the strikes I was involved in was nine months. It started in September, ended the following May. Um, very difficult times. Um, there were sit-ins, all of which I uh, participated in, and I suppose was very involved at an early stage as a shop steward in that motor industry. So I suppose it was a, a very good grounding for. Uh, lots of the industrial disputes that I dealt with afterwards in my career throughout the movement. So when when we lost our jobs in in British Leyland, then I applied for a job as an official in the Federated Workers Union, uh, which I got. And um, I went, I suppose I was with them from 1985. And then the Federated Workers Union um, merged and amalgamated with the Irish Transport Union to form SIP2. So I was there until 2015. And then I was selected as uh, the General Secretary of ICTU. Yes, and you were the first woman appointed to this position. Um, and you've said there, and you're right, you've been very successful uh, in SIPTU also. Your own personal circumstances so led you into the trade union movement. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong about this. I just have this notion, uh, particularly then and maybe still now, that it, the trade union movement is, is a very male-dominated um, environment. Do you think that's a fair reflection? Is it changing and is it changing quickly enough? Well, um I would just draw a difference. There, there, is, there are more women in the trade union movement uh, and ICTU is an all-island uh, organisation. So we represent uh, workers across the island, north and south. And um, there are more women in the trade union movement than there are men. At a leadership, yes, at a leadership uh, level, I, I was... At a leadership level, that is not reflected. Mm. And um, I, I sort, sort of somewhat cringed, I have to say, uh, both when I was um, vice president of SIP2 as the first general officer, female general officer, and then becoming the first woman in Congress. Like my people would say, said to me they were very congratulatory about it and so on. But then on the other hand, my view was, well, really, that's an awful shame that we've had to wait so long uh, for a woman to um, be in leadership in the movement at that level. So it doesn't.
us, it isn't now. We're 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 getting better, mm. and there are more general secretaries now, um, and more people in uh, more powerful positions in the trade union movement uh, who are women. But um, it is too slow. Mm. Um, we have in Congress in the last uh, ten years now developed a good leadership program uh, for women members, and it's proving both very popular and it's also proving very valuable. So uh, those sort of things are, are those sort of moves will help to, um, I suppose, address. But look, it's it's not good. It's no better, by, mind you, than the the private business sec- sector, which is really bad, as you know, for the population of women at the top. Yep. And, um, and politics mean, the, as well. And, and I don't think it even... And I, in the public sector generally, it's not... The public sector is better than the private sector, but it's not great. It's you not know? great. I, I don't even ask, like, asking you that question because I often find women who do achieve... Um, high office or get to the top of their own organisations are the very ones who are asked about the imbalance when actually we should probably be asking the men who come on about the gender issues. So, but I just wanted to get your your assessment of where it's at and yeah, if the pace is moving been, along. I suppose, um, as I have worked my way through, I mean, I, I didn't come in with any silver spoon or anything mm. like that. Uh, my life has been based on, I mean, the first job I ever did as a young girl at 12 years of age was to scrub other people's floors. So, um, and that was to get bus fare to go to school. So from, from that point of view, I would know uh, I would be it would be very much a part of me uh, to understand um, and to want to represent the interests of workers and want to make uh, a, a better life for them and for us all generally. So I suppose that has motivated me throughout my life. I haven't done a lot of thinking, which maybe is wrong on my part, in relation to, uh, you know, the first woman or any of that. I, I was too busy trying to um, maybe try and settle some of the other issues that need to to, to be, I mean, some of the policy issues that need to be reversed yeah. uh, for generally. I think when you're just going through um, organisations that are predominantly male and you're just, you know, moving up the ranks yourself, it's not something you do think about. You just kind of get on with the business. But as you say, you, you came from um, a background and, and a work experience that maybe makes you very successful in representing the people that you do. And that's a large part of your success also. But just moving away from you now for a second and looking at the trade union movement in a more broad sense. I, I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, the union participation here in Ireland now and internationally. Is it growing? Um, is there a reason for that? Can you just give us a reflection of your membership and what you assess the sort of general landscape to be? Yeah, well, we represent um, uh, our figures at the end of 2021. We represented the Republic of Ireland, 521,000 workers. And in the, uh, in Northern Ireland, we represent uh, 199,000 workers. So we're just under the um, 750,000 uh, across the island. Now, um, then people usually make the breakdown between private and public. Mm-hmm. And um, there are about 350,000 public sector workers in the Republic of Ireland. Um, I would I would say that about 220,000 of those are organized, which is very high density level. Mm. If you take into account that the most senior management people would not be, they might be in associations, but they're not in trade unions. Uh, so I would say uh, there are still more private sector workers than there are public sector workers, which is not something the general commentary uh, uh, 
usually demonstrates, but uh, that's a reality. Um, we're, I mean, I like to divide the labour market in Ireland um, into three categories. Uh, we have uh, those companies that will are not hostile to trade unions with whom we do collective bargaining and we have normal adult engagement. We make agreements with them. Sometimes we have problems, but we solve them usually uh, if we can at all. Then you have a group um, who won't do business with uh, trade unions, but who will uh, operate an accepted body, which is the, the other way within the legislation in Ireland, whereby uh, representation can happen. And then you will have a large coterie of employers who are hostile to trade unions, who will not engage with trade unions, whether or not uh, the trade union has a large membership and um, they just won't do business. And unfortunately, the law in Ireland allows that behaviour to continue. And how so, do you how do you as a union deal with those situations where workers are approaching you, the company is hostile? What do you do? Well, in heretofore, we have um, we would organise those workers and we would um, tell them that the process is that we would approach the employer. If the employer is hostile, we normally would go to the WRC and seek assistance. The employer would normally not attend. Mm. We would then go to the Labour Court. The Labour Court, in such instances, the history of such events would tell us the Labour Court would normally say to the company, um, usually in their absence, uh, the company wouldn't turn up. But the Labour Court would say you should collectively bargain and you should participate in, uh, in negotiation and so on and engagement with the trade union on behalf of its members. We would also I'll just say to you in Europe generally, we are the only country that allows this behaviour in Europe. And uh, we now have a, so, so I think this, we're on the cusp of change and improvement on this uh, because the European uh, Commission has just about completed a, a new directive, which will be published very shortly, which will uh, basically expect member states to have about an 80% coverage of collective bargaining across the economy in their labour mm. market, and which also uh, sets out that there should be a framework for worker representation and so on. Now, that's a big change. It is something that we, as part of the European Trade Union Confederation, have fought very hard to get. It was interesting. Some of the countries, uh, some of the Nordic countries who are way ahead advanced in terms of representation, they were objecting to the directive because they thought it might dilute the uh, terms and conditions they had. Right. So it's just interesting to see to, to, that that was the case. So this directive... Um, Actually, that was a spur from our point of view, and I was engaged in it myself on behalf of the Congress in Ireland, uh, whereby we went to the government here and we said, this directive is coming down the line. Um, you, you will be expected as a member state, Ireland will be expected to improve its collective bargaining coverage and indeed how it deals with trade unions. So we want to engage with you on that rather than wait and then have to wait two years for transposition. So to be fair, the government said that they would engage in a high level group which is now uh, those discussions and that discourse is now just coming to an end. And I'm hopeful that uh, from that high level group, we will have some uh, pathway to meeting the terms of the directive and much more importantly, uh, improving the lot for workers so that they can be represented, that they can engage and that um, they can put forward claims and they will have to be listened to. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and I'm talking to Patricia King, who is Secretary General of ICTU. Now, Patricia, um, 
talking about the evolving work situations and um, workers operating in a landscape where there's more regulations forcing um, employers, uh, whether it's EU regulations or regulations here in in Ireland, um, essentially workers issues or are workers issues for you less about work conditions and is your role now becoming more about um, creating a sort of a, a unified voice for the right society that workers want to live in so more about lobbying for those conditions more about shaping laws and doing that work at European level do you find yourself doing more of that than you know the individual workers rights um, well it's twofold and I wouldn't draw a distinction between two because both are very interrelated. Uh, firstly, uh, collective bargaining, so where workers can collectively bargain pay and terms and conditions with their employer, they are much more likely to have more satisfactory terms. That's usually described as a union premium, but it means that they have some control and influence over their rates of pay and conditions. Where they don't, the employer then has the full power and influence and they direct uh, what the labour costs are and so on. But that leads to huge levels of inequality. So the best way to redistribute wealth in our country is to have collective bargaining whereby workers get a reasonable, decent rate of pay for the job that they do. Now, that brings you in then to the other societal issues because where that inequality exists, um, then the government have to move using taxpayers' money to deal with the deprivation that comes from such inequality. And you will have what we know as social transfers that have to happen so that the government has to intervene and subsidise uh, people's income mm. so that they are not falling into deprivation. So you can see that if you had um, a proper across the board and if we get the 80% collective bargaining coverage, that will lessen the cost on the state and on taxpayers' money because employers will have to pay the fair wage rather than depending, as they do in the low-paid areas and sectors, uh, rather than depending on the state's intervention. And and I just two figures that are important on this. The CSO figures tell us that 24.7% of workers are determined in Ireland as low-paid. And the real-time um, Revenue Commissioner um, data set, it tells us that 62% of workers in Ireland, their gross pay is 36,000 or less. So there is a myth out there that there's a lot of people earning a lot of money. You can mm. see from those figures that that's not the case at all. Mm. So you can also see that in these inflationary times, uh, why Congress uh, in Ireland would have put across to the government very strong propositions in relation to the social wage. And by that, I mean the other pieces that have to be covered by uh, people going to work, uh, like childcare, like transport, like all of those costs that uh, make the machine work so that you do get to work and that you, when you get there, all of the other issues are taken care of. And they cost money and we're very bad medical expenses. We're very low in, in Ireland compared to other European countries in terms of how we manage that within our society. So to answer your question or to bring it around to the, to the full point, um, we would spend a lot of time uh, 
trying to make uh, argue that the collective bargaining issue would be resolved once and for all. And we would also simultaneously go in and have discussions wherever we can to whoever in, in authority will listen to us in trying to change the order in relation to those other issues. Um, just a final question for you, Patricia, uh, on the international front. We're seeing workers' unions pop up in very modern companies, as we would call them, um, Amazon, Starbucks, Google. Um, what do you put this down to? Is it a reflection of a more fractured nature of American politics? Do people feel less secure in a politically diverse um, and divisive uh, environment, such as you see in the United States? Or is this a global phenom- phenomenon post-pandemic that workers are just trying to kind of engage more um, for their own rights with employers? Yes, well, I think we are at a moment of change uh, globally. And I think um, we've heard quite a lot about now, rather than just companies valuing the shareholders, mm. um, they are now valid, valuing the stakeholders. Uh, you will know, Mandy, that there has been considerable emphasis in the last maybe 10 years, even in relation to environmental and social goals. And of course, uh, they're all determined by human rights, the UN and so on. And workers' participation and workers' rights and having workers' voices heard is all part of that agenda. So there is also, you have organisations like the IMF and the World Economic Forum and so on, even in the last two and three years, coming out and saying unions are good things. Unions lead to added productivity. Unions lead to happier workplaces. Unions lead to workers feeling that they want to stay. And you see, you have now... Uh, added, and I think on you're right, on top of the pandemic, you had a lot of movement in the labour market. In Ireland now, we have a very tight labour market. That's a feature across Europe. So workers now have, within that tight labour market, they have a little bit more choice than they had before. And so they have to be attracted uh, to the workplace. And telling them that they have no voice, telling them that they don't have any power in their own workplace is not really uh, a fairly a brainy thing to do. So uh, I think the, the days of the neoliberal agenda that Thatcher and Reagan and so on uh, pontificated where there's no such thing as society and everybody for themselves and all of that, those days are over. And I think we are now on the cusp of something new. And I think that European directive and its transposition uh, in Ireland and other countries will make a seismic change to how workers' futures will be determined. I think you're right. That war for talent has certainly changed uh, the landscape for many employers. Um, for now, though, we'll have to leave it there. That's Patricia King, Secretary General of ICTU. Patricia, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Next week, we'll check out the world of cryptocurrencies and I'll be examining if the risks are worth the rewards with Sean Keyes of The Currency. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. They'll be reviewing all of your Sunday papers. So from me, Mandy Johnston, that was Taking Stock. Enjoy the rest of your day.